This week on the Sound and Say Game of Thrones podcast, we break down Mockingbird, season four, episode seven, and it's written by David Benioff and D.B. Weiss and directed by Alex Sakharov. We'll be right back after this. back with the Sound On Sight Game of Thrones podcast. This is Kate Kalsik, TV editor over at Sound On Sight, and I'm joined by my wonderful co-host, Ricky D, general editor. General editor. Hello, everybody. And this week joining us at the podcast is Sean Coletti, my co-host of the Televerse, as well as uh, This Is Our Design, our Hannibal podcast. Sean, welcome on. Thank you for having me. So before we get into all of our discussion of a very eventful and uh, I... I liked it, <laughs> episode of Game of Thrones. As we always say at the top of the podcast, there will be no spoilers uh, for things that are yet to come from the books. I have read the books. Ricky has not read the books. Sean, what's your relationship with the Game of Thrones books? I was coerced into reading them, so I have read them. have read them, but we will not talk about anything that is yet to come in the Song of Ice and Fire. We will talk about stuff that has happened on in the books and has happened on the show, but there will be... Yeah, you know, we'll be we'll be very careful. No worries, no spoilers, ahoy! Everybody will be a okay. Can I just say something off the off the top of the show here? So each and every single week, I make a prediction and I speculate, and usually I'm dead on and right. And so last week we we're talking about who could possibly step in and be the champion and or defender for Tyrion. And so we were talking about it on the podcast, and I was totally wrong, but. Right after we recorded a podcast, I was editing the podcast, and I sent Kate a Facebook message, and I was totally right. So <laughs> technically, I'm totally right. I wasn't right on the podcast, but I was still right while editing the podcast to the point where I actually want to go in and try to find a way to re-record that segment. <laughs> it will be Prince Oberon, and yeah. <laughs> no, that was so fun when we were talking about it last week because you guys uh, – because, Ricky, you were so close. You were, I, like, you were so close to, to piecing it together. And it was one of those, you know, no spoilers uh, situations for me. So I was biting my tongue. But, you know, it, it was such a such a fun way that they revealed that this week. And uh, I'm curious, as, as non-book readers, did you guys remember the mountain? Like, because he's been mentioned a lot, but they, they recast the actor for this. And uh, we haven't seen him we've heard of him but we haven't seen him in quite a while uh, Sh- uh sean you're a book reader but but ricky did you remember uh the character and were you able to immediately associate him well yeah but i also write reviews of game of thrones so it's you know maybe i have an uh an advantage over a casual viewer um i don't know i mean it wasn't a big surprise i and i knew ahead of time that they had recast the actor so yeah i remembered well and of course the next episode is titled The Mountain and the Viper, so that helps, too. Um, right. Sean, how did you feel like they, they handled that reveal? 
Uh, well, what you just mentioned about the title was somewhat unfortunate because um, I, I have my own blog and one of my friends writes reviews for the site and he hasn't read the books. And I basically had to tell him, don't look at future episode titles if you don't want to spoil yourself. Um, the reveal was good. I think that maybe the recast probably tipped some people off that the mountain would play somewhat of a role in this season. Um, and just the scene where Oberon comes to Tyrion and the the music was really well done and, you know, I will be your champion. The, the delivery was fantastic. So I think that that's built up a lot of excitement. But I kind of wish that we had gotten at least one or two more mountain sightings up until this point. Like, I know that, that Weiss and Benioff can kind of alter where he is so that he can be on screen at some point. I feel like maybe that there wasn't enough buildup. Well, hmm. there's been a lot of talk of the Hound, and we very specifically get that uh, story of the Mountain and the Hound refreshed for us this week in, in a scene that I thought worked really nicely with uh, the Hound and, and Arya. But I, I, I think that's a valid argument. Uh, I, I If I was not very aware of what what was coming next and, and uh, where the season was going, I might have, you know, that, that wouldn't have had the same impact for me. I don't know. I think if you pay close attention to the show, even if you're a non-book reader, it should be obvious who the mountain is to the point where if you don't realize who he is when you see him, it's, I mean, we are reminded at the end of the episode exactly who he is because Prince Oberon decides to, you know, become Tyrion's champion slash defender because he states that it is the man who murdered and raped his sister and her children. So I don't know. I, I really think that the, see, I think that this episode has two great scenes, two really good scenes, two terrible scenes, but I think it's a fantastic episode because of those two great scenes and those two really good scenes. And I think uh, three of the great scenes revolves around Tyrion and his three guests, starting with Jamie, um, which is it is is probably my least favorite of the three visits, but it's still an incredible scene. And I think each of these scenes is a series highlight. I was writing my review, and there were so many things I could have written. Like I think my review was over a thousand words. Like I think a thousand five hundred words, to be honest. And I was like, do I really want to write about Danny? And do I really want to write about Melisande? And do I really want to write about Sansa? And I'm like, no. And I spent like a thousand five hundred words just writing about Tyrion, his three visitors. And Arya and the Hound, because to me, that's the highlight of the episode. That's all I think we really need to talk about today, because the rest of it is garbage. I wouldn't I wouldn't go that far. Except for the Danny scenes. But well, yeah. the before, the, before we go and talk about Tyrion being awesome, which we will, don't worry. Let's, you know, Sean, what do you did you think those scenes were terrible? Uh, terrible? No, no, not at all. I mean, there's always kind of superfluous scenes in any Game of Thrones episodes that aren't called Blackwater, but. Um, I, I enjoyed seeing – put Brienne and, and Pod like on every episode, and that's fine because they've certainly like broken up some of the good kind of buddy pairings, and that one obviously draws a lot of entertainment. So just like kind of the Hound and the Arya, although the Hound and the Arya certainly like elicit like better and deeper material, uh, Brienne and, and Pod are just kind of fun to watch. I, I am blanking on the guy's name who does the kidney pie. Um, Hot pie. Hot pie. Yep, there you go. And he, it was great to see him back, if just for a brief moment. But what about uh, the scene with Sansa and the scene with Danny? You, you know what's good about the scene with Danny is that she sleeps with Dario, but she sleeps with Dario because she's using sex as a weapon. Like she's actually taking control of the situation because then she kind of uses him and sends him out to do her dirty work. And well, and also, for fun. Also, it's a sex scene that does not involve female nudity. 
And I thought that was a really interesting twist for a HBO production. I was like, wow, really HBO? That That is refreshing. Thank you. Thank you for doing something positive with the character of Danny and not exploiting the actress. So I did like the scenes with Danny. So uh, yeah, but I mean, the scenes with Brienne and Pod, I mean, they're they fun to watch because we like those characters. And I mean, Hot Pie's, an, you know, if you're a book reader, I think you, you care about Hot Pie. I think if you're a non-book reader, you just don't really care about the character, to be totally honest. But it didn't really do much for the episode. And, and I wrote this in my review. I wrote that the best episodes of Game of Thrones are those that find a unifying theme and offer several interesting parallels between the many characters and the many storylines we follow throughout all of Westeros. And in this episode, I mean, I couldn't really think of what the unifying theme is or the parallels, aside from the fact that we get to really focus on siblings. We got Jamie, Tyrion, and Cersei. We got the Hound of the Mountain. And of course, we've got Arya and Sansa. And I guess you can also say Liza and, and Lady Stark, even though Lady Stark is dead. But, I mean, there's so many siblings throughout the whole entire show that, that could be a unifying theme in every single episode. So when we get to a scene with Melisandre, I'm like, why do we have the scene of Melisandre in this episode? It doesn't tie into the overall theme of the episode. It doesn't give us much information. It just felt out of place. It's moving pieces. There's a lot of moving pieces mm -hmm. at this point in, in most of the, I think every season of the show and around episode six, episode seven, because we know episode nine is always a big deal episode. So that's right. where things need to come to a head. So there's just, there's some table setting. And last year it was, why are we getting all of these scenes with, uh, with Rob and Talisa uh, and, 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 there, you know, there's a reason that we get this scene with Melisandre, but you're correct. It does not tie in, at least as far as I'm concerned, thematically. Uh, you could say there's themes of um, of choice and of sacrifice, and there, yes, mm -hmm. all of that. Uh, you know, and what what are you willing to sacrifice? You look at Oberyn; he's willing to put himself uh, in danger to. He's willing to sacrifice himself if it gives him a shot at uh, at taking out the mountain, and so then you could tie that in with uh, with Melisandre and what's going on there. But really, it's because they need to have Melisandre and that whole part of the world and, and part of the story prepared for what will happen with them later. And that's yeah. also why we get the scene with Brienne and Pod, which is, I would say, by the way, a, a change from the books and when mm -hmm. I, another another change from the books i'm glad to see i think it you know it sends our characters all heading towards you know the our two comedy duos heading towards the um the the eerie at the same time which i think is good just good narrative structuring but um but no i i, I agree that this is moving pieces around and that's just a a unfortunate side effect of the kind of storytelling that game of thrones does yeah all i'm saying is it should have been in like a previous episode. It didn't have to be in this episode because we've had scenes of Melisandre and Stannis in previous episodes. And if they could have found a way to include it in the previous episode, as opposed to this episode where it really sticks out like a sore thumb, because it's like a two to three to maybe four minute scene of her. And we never return to that part of the world. That's all. Okay. What about uh, our scene with Liza and Sansa? Oh, seriously, Kate, come on. You know what I'm going to say. I... I don't like Sansa. I, I, I've i tried to like her. I've tried my best to like her. You liked we, her like the last time we got scenes with her. What changed? I know, but it's few and far between. I mean, 
we'll get like two great scenes of Sansa and then we'll get a bunch of scenes with Sansa just being Sansa. And I'm just like, why, 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 why is she the Stark that's still alive? Why, you know, why isn't Lady Stark still alive instead of Sansa? I mean, it was nice to see her slap Robin and for once actually take charge. And, and I don't know, like that would have been cool. I mean, it's like, it, it reminds me of when Joffrey got slapped. I'm, I'm surprised I haven't seen a meme pop up on Tumblr yet where we keep on seeing him repeatedly being slapped by Sansa. I mean, so that was kind of cool, but, it, it, it's not even just Sansa. It's a combination of Sansa, Robin, Liza, the whole entire scene. And the ending of this episode, I, I think, is god-awful. It was pure garbage. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's like That was like a terrible scene. It's one of the very few scenes in Game of Thrones that I absolutely hate. I mean, you know someone's going to fall down the moon door as soon as Sansa walks up to it. And we know it's not going to be Sansa. It, it was just telegraphed so early on. And it just didn't do anything for me. I really did not like any of those scenes, including the scenes with Littlefinger. I mean, Littlefinger reaching out to kiss her. I was like, come on. Well, I think uh, for me, uh, one of the things I struggled with in that scene is I am really not enjoying the the vocal choices of uh, Aiden Gillen this season. I th- I feel like maybe this like it's this idea that at court he puts on this different accent and voice, and then when he's away from that, he's and he's being more himself. He has a different sort of accent, mm-hmm. either that or it's just inconsistent. But Aiden Gillen is too good of an actor for me to think it's that. So if it is a choice, I'm I'm not a fan, and that was very distracting for me. I think I think this scene, when I compare it with how it worked for me in the books, which was way more effective i i think it has to do with being separated out from what we got last week i feel like if it was if that had been structured over one episode beginning middle and end of an episode mm-hmm. maybe it would have been more effective sean what do you think oh, i completely agree with that observation breaking it up into two pieces probably took away a lot of the impact i didn't think it was terrible it felt like a a sensible way to end an episode of television because it's kind of just a a shocking bit of action. But, you know, it's a character who the only way that people would have any interest in her is if they like really go into Sansa's perspective and and look at her as somebody who doesn't have much family left uh, and who isn't even aware that some of her family that is left is still alive at this point. So to, to lose somebody else, despite how, by how murky those relations are, I think is something that we probably should feel. But in in Game of Thrones, the TV series, I guess they just didn't make Lysa interesting enough for that to have an effect. So really, it just comes off as kind of um, shock for shock value. Yeah, for non-book readers, it doesn't work. It, it feels like it's in service for fans of the book or people that read the book. I mean, I think it was last week or two weeks ago, I complained that you know, we haven't seen Liza since I think season one. We we don't really know much about her. We talked about the terrible scene in which she had an exchange with uh, with um, with Littlefinger, and she reaches over to kiss him. And I forget what she says. It was just a terribly written scene. And in this in this sequence too, I thought it was terribly written. Like when he says, "Oh, my sweet wife, my sweet silly wife, I have only loved one woman." Like it reminded me of some of those like '40s melodramatic classic films where everything's over the top and the dialogue's like larger than life and the performances are like made for theater you know not made for for tv or for film when the camera's up close in front of the actors and it just did not work for me at all but i will say that it was interesting to see Littlefinger actually kill someone with his own hands because up until this point we've seen him as a scheming mastermind 
who's plotted and, you know, come up with this crazy master plan so he can gain absolute power, but we've never actually seen him kill people. At least not that I think. Uh, I could be mistaken. I don't think I've actually seen him kill anybody. He's and had also, people killed, but not like Dantos, not that long ago, but right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and secondly, in that sequence, I think it becomes clear that he kills King Joffrey because he wants to take revenge on the Lannisters for killing Lady Stark because that is a one woman he truly loved. There's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot going on with Baelish and and this is I think one of the struggles of Game of Thrones last season and this season they have a certain number of you know significant cliffhangery kind of moments and if you've read the books and you look at these titles of these episodes Sean and I know what each of the the endings to each of these episodes are going to be with the potential exception of the finale. But as soon as I saw the title of this episode was Mockingbird, I knew how it was going to end. And I know how the next episode is going to end. I mean, that doesn't change my enjoyment of it. I still look forward to, to seeing the next episode and how it's going to end. But they have so many big moments that they need to get to and that they want to give the weight that they deserve that it it becomes a problem for them so mm -hmm. it would you know Tyrion demanding trial by combat is a big epic episode ending moment but so is Littlefinger pushing Liza out the moon door but so is what we're going to get at the end of the next you know, so they have so many of these that if if they keep it narratively coherent they, they would just they would need more episodes if you were going to have the the whole like the more logical progression of the Sansa Liza whole thing in one episode, that would that would work. But it would you can't just go all to the eerie for an episode right when Tyrion's demanded trial by combat. Yeah, you know, it doesn't work. And one of the other fun things to mention to the the non-book readers is keep in mind that all of these ridiculous, exciting, epic kind of cliffhanger things happen within the span of like three hundred pages in the third book. It's very ridiculous. Mm -hmm. It's amazing, like how much Weiss and Benioff teased this out. If you look at demanding the trial by combat, I'm sure that got a lot of people really excited. And here we are in the next episode, and we don't get to see that fight, which makes sense, I suppose, because this is a ten episode season, and you'd want that to be postponed. But this is also an unfortunate circumstance where where HBO is taking next week off, so we have to wait yet another week. Mm -hmm. Well, and they wanted to give, because I was thinking about that. Why wouldn't you go straight from trial by combat to the combat? And I think they wanted to give, they wanted to give Oberyn's choice the proper weight. And they wanted to, to get, make the direness of Tyrion's situation evident. So I think that's why they went this way. And maybe this is our transition into talking about these three scenes. Mm -hmm. Ricky, you've already mentioned the first scene that we get with Jamie. I also I thought that was done very well. I like the honesty of Jamie's uh you know, his his helplessness in the situation and his frustration at it that he can't be the champion for his brother because he's just he wouldn't he knows he would lose. It would not be a contest at all. And, and his you know frustration and his helplessness is great there, but I particularly enjoyed the scene with Braun. I thought that was really honest and really, uh, really heartfelt, and I like that they spend the time on it. Oh my god, the scene with Braun was incredible. Come on, I mean, that was the second best scene of the episode. 
Braun finally stops by to visit Tyrion in the cell, something we've been waiting for, something that Tyrion's been waiting for. We already know, we already expect that his loyalty has been challenged. We don't know if we can trust him. And then, you know, he he basically tells Tyrion and therefore tells us, the audience, about his deal with Cersei and how he's going to marry the noblewoman, Lolly Stockworth, I think is her name. But like Shay, Braun is someone whose company Tyrion paid for, right? So like Shay, Braun can be bought. And so there's a lot of similarities between Shay and Braun and their relationship with Tyrion. But the d- main difference between Shay and Braun is I think he still at least values whatever relationship he and Tyrion shared. And unlike Shay, he's not bitter. And I mean, like I, the whole exchange between Tyrion and Braun was kind of heartbreaking because you know he kind of wishes he can fight for Tyrion, but he also is realistic and he knows he most likely won't defeat the mountain. And it's not worth his time. And he says at one point, he's like, you know, I like you, but I like myself more. And and he's such a straight up honest dude. And that's why I kind of respect the guy. And even though at the end of the day, he doesn't help Tyrion, I can't hold it against him because honestly, I think I would have done the exact same thing. I mean, the mountain is a huge warrior. And even if he defeats the mountain, what Tyrion can promise him isn't as enticing as what Cersei promises him. Like, why would he move to the north? It's cold. It's falling apart, you know? Why not just stay in the south where it's warm? And, and of course, he also mentions his, like, I guess, uh, his plan to supposedly kill his sister-in-law. So, therefore, he would gain absolute total power. And so, yeah, I mean, that was an, a fantastic, fantastic sequence. Plus, he would also make an enemy of Cersei, which has been proven you don't want to be Cersei's enemy either. Um, So there's that consideration as well. And it's just, it's, there's also the sense that if it was, if it, if it wasn't the mountain, he would be way more likely to do it, but it is. Well, if it wasn't the mountain, then Tyrion would be screwed. Well, if it it wasn't the mountain, I think Bronn would do it. If it was one of the other, if it was Sir Marin Trout or whoever, you know, Sean, I mean, Sean, what do you think? Uh, About Bronn's choice? Yeah, well, it would, Bronn, if if he wouldn't have to go up against the mountain, if he was going up against somebody else, would Bronn have stayed with Tyrion or would he have taken the money? Uh, It's certainly enticing um, that, that he would fight anybody else who would pose such a physical challenge. I don't know, but like Ricky said, Cersei can at this point offer him more, and and Braun mentioned, you know, you you said if anybody ever tried to buy me, you would double their price, and, and essentially he can't do that at this point. So He can't, because it's a title. It's a castle. It's not money. It's more than money. But then, again, it was like, why would I do that? And Tyrion makes the point, because you're my friend, and they are friends. So... I would be torn, I guess. The, the the inner part of me that absolutely loves these two characters together as a pair would want to believe that he would fight somebody who wasn't the mountain. Mm-hmm. I also like the line that Bronn has. Yeah, but yeah, we're friends, but you haven't. I haven't asked you to do something like this for me. Mm-hmm. It's true. Uh, yeah, I mean, you were asking about um, themes for the episode, Ricky, and I don't know if I have a good one, but the one that kind of stuck out was. Uh, during the, the Arya and Hound scene, where they see the the guy who is is dying, and they choose to, the Hound chooses to kill him, and the guy's talking about going on, you know, out of habit, and that seems to be where a lot of people are in this episode, where they're at a precipice, and 
They either need to decide to go on, which is kind of the natural inclination, or basically end up dead. And so Braun knows that he has to move on from this because sticking with Tyrion at this point is either, well, in any case, will probably lead to death, whether it's immediate or down the line because of what Cersei will do. So do you think that this is one of those shows in which we just watch a bunch of characters survive? Like, they're just surviving. They don't really have much to look forward to. Like, is it that grim? It's not as bleak or grim as The Walking Dead in that sense, I would say, because clearly there's a, a designed beginning, middle, and end. You know, book readers don't have books six and seven yet, but we we know that Martin has an idea of what that is, and so he's he's clearly building up to something. So I'd have to imagine that in spite of all of the death that happens in this series, um, there's a lot of positive things I think that people forget about along the way because it's easier to remember those big moments like the Red Wedding. Um, so I would say that, that no, this isn't just people surviving. It's a little bit more than that, um, whether that's kind of overcoming certain personal obstacles or learning how to deal with certain responsibilities. I'm not sure, but um, it, it seems slightly more optimistic than I think a lot of people give it credit for. And it's important to remember, as as viewers, we know a lot of stuff that the characters don't. And so we have reasons that they don't have to be optimistic. So we know that Arya is alive. Sansa doesn't. Sansa also doesn't know her, you know, Bran is alive and Rickon is alive. So of the Stark kids, most of them are alive. However, the only people who know that they're all alive are us. Right, but that's why I think Bran is such an important character, and that's why I absolutely love his character, because a lot of people, at least a lot of the reviews I read for the show and their friends I talk to are, or who are like hardcore fans, they don't like the character of Bran, but for me, he offers hope because there's a prophecy. He's going somewhere for a reason, and I'm assuming it's leading to how the series ends, and I think there's a light at the end of the tunnel. So that for me, whenever Bran and, and, and Jojen and that whole crew is missing. I kind of am missing also the hope. Like, you know what I mean? Cause yeah, yeah. Sansa's still alive and Arya's still alive and Jon Snow's still alive, but they could die in the next episode. You know, she could have died in this episode at the very end for all I know. But Bran, it seems like because of these visions and these supernatural elements are surrounding those characters, we know he's not going to die anytime soon. And that is, that is a bit of hope that I think I need as a viewer can we just quickly talk about Jamie once again? Because I mean, once again, this character shines like he's a highlight reel. Every time he's on screen, except for, you know, the rape scene, which happened a few episodes ago, it's just so fun to watch the character and the actor on screen. I think he does a fabulous job, the actor. And I love every single scene with him and Tyrion. Like, I love how Tyrion is so openly honest with him, how he admits that his weakness is falling, falling in love with Shay, how he admits that he couldn't stand watching her testifying against him, how he admits that his actions were partly driven by the desire to deny his dad, Tywin, the deal that he crafted with Jaime. Like, we get to learn a lot about um, Tyrion when Tyrion visits Jamie or when Jamie visits Tyrion like he just brings out the best in whoever he's surrounded with be it even Cersei sometimes and of course Brienne and, and Bronn uh, Jamie is just such, such a fantastic character and, and it's it's funny because we I bitched and bitched and bitched like two weeks ago three weeks ago about how you know I like this character I've grown to like this character but I've never thought he's a 100% 
good person. I still don't think he's a 100% good person, but I think that's what makes his character so fascinating because I know there's a dark side about his character. I know he can do terrible things, but yet I still like his character. It is just such a fantastic feat of characterization to take the character that you hate, you hate and despise in the pilot, and by season three, book three, season three, season four, you're like, son of a bitch, I like him. How'd you do that, show? Mm -hmm. So it's like that in the book, too? Oh, yeah. Basically, in book three, Jamie becomes a point-of-view character, and that changes everything. Okay, so now, because Tyrion called trial by, uh, what is it, trial by combat, does this mean that his deal with Tywin no longer stands, or will he still be Tywin's heir? Jamie? Yeah. He, he His deal was that they would spare Tyrion, Tyrion would go up to the wall, but if if Tyrion wins the trial by combat, he goes free. Okay. So yeah. the deal's the deal's off. Mm-hmm. I also love it. I love it when Jamie points out the fact that if he if he decides to be Tyrion's defender, is it defender or champion? I'm always confused. Champion. Champion. So if he decides to be Tyrion's champion and he dies, that means the family bloodline dies. Because that means Tyrion dies, right? Because he would be executed. Mm-hmm. So therefore, Tywin would be screwed. It was everything Father wanted. You do see that. He gets you back as his heir. The future Lord of the Rock. And he ships me off to Castle Black, out of sight at last. All so perfect. It felt good to take that from him. He knows I'm innocent, and he's willing to sacrifice me anyway. He's willing to sacrifice any of us. Not you. You're the golden son. You could kill a king, lose a hand. Fuck your own sister. You'll always be the golden son. Careful. I'm the last friend you've got. At least I got to tell them what they really are. Yes. Brilliant speech. They'll be talking about it for days to come. I thought you were a realist. Didn't realize you'd die for pride. Don't give up on me just yet. I survived one trial by combat, even though you weren't there to save me. You were talking, Ricky, about the how Jamie brings out the best in, in the characters around him. I, I like that Tyrion feels comfortable enough around his brother where he can say something like, you just have sex with your own sister, and and Jamie knows not to take that too personally like if that was anybody else you know that person would have killed Tyrion but that that connection is so strong that they're allowed to have that kind of leeway with each other and so that makes that that brotherhood a lot um a lot more I guess interesting and it it creates more investment I think for the viewers also it's interesting that Jamie is straight up honest with himself and with Tyrion in saying that he isn't a good enough warrior anymore to actually win the battle against the mountain without his right hand. He knows he can't win the battle. And so despite the fact that he's been training with Bronn is still not enough. And that I'm sure hurts Jamie in big ways because again, he's known as the Kingslayer. He's known as a great swordsman and now he's no longer the great swordsman. Now he's just, you know, Jamie. The guy who's missing a hand and sleeps with his sister and yeah. Well, shall we talk about that third scene? Was this your favorite? Was this the highlight of the uh, of that sequence or this that series of scenes for you, uh, 
Uh, Ricky? Hell yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay, okay. Of the long list of great actors on the show, which there are many, Peter Dinklage is by far my favorite. But putting Peter Dinklage in the same room as Pedro Pascal, who is absolutely fascinating and amazing, and his performance is fantastic. I mean, seeing the exchange between those two characters was one of the best moments in the entire series. It is a feat of acting. It is a tour de force performance, especially on a part of Peter Dinklage, because last week I was going apeshit and crazy over Peter Dinklage and his delivery and his performance. And I think he outdid himself in this episode because in this episode, it's not larger than life. It's not like, you know, the imp standing in front of the whole courtroom and just telling everyone off and, and, you know, yelling and screaming and just being outraged. In this episode, he has to hold back and he's feeling frustration, anger, heartbreak. He's humiliated. And uh, he has to do it with little words. And we always talk about this on, especially on the movie podcast, Sorted Cinema, how it's harder for an actor to perform without dialogue, without the use of words, by just showing what he feels with the expression of his face physically, like showing what he feels physically. And that's exactly what he does in this in, in this specific sequence. And, of course, the story that we get from the prince is sort of heartbreaking when he talks about visiting Tyrion when he's a baby and how he hears these stories about the monster, the monster baby, the monster born into the Lannisters and how it has like a tail between its legs and horns and uh, red eyes and et cetera, et cetera. And then when he finally sees the baby, he tells seriously, he's like, no, it's just the baby. That was kind of like heartbreaking. Sean, how did this scene uh, live, live up to the, I mean, the, the, the scene in the, or that story that we get is pretty much word for word from the books. How did they, they capture that scene in the book? Did you prefer this? I mean, I think I might've preferred this just because you get that extra element of performance. Yeah. I mean like, wow, they knocked it out of the park. Um, in the most recent episode of a penny dreadful, there's a scene where Ava Green's character just gets to go to town and we get Timothy Dalton's character and he basically just has to react to her in that scene. And it's such a beautiful, nuanced, silence, silent performance and this is the same thing here where I think Pedro Pascal delivers this story perfectly, but just as powerful is seeing Tyrion's facial expressions change and, and to see like those stabs and the pain in his eyes when he's hearing all of this. It's, it's a fantastic feat of performance, absolutely, and that's probably what elevates it above the, the scene in the book because unless you are coming to the book having – seen some of the series already you don't know how great of an actor peter dinklage is and how he can draw that out mm -hmm. it also helps with the cinematography and the setup because i mean i don't know how it plays out in a book but it starts in a dark cell it's very grim it's very dark the lighting is low you know um, we get a lot of shadows on Peter Dinklage's face and uh, also on the prince's face, played by Pedro Pascal. And then he lights up the torch at the end of the story. And that is when he tells Tyrion that he will be his champion. And it's just like a light of hope. It's And just to see the expression on Tyrion's face, how you know he's ready to give up and he feels like he has nowhere else to go, no one else to turn to. And all of a sudden, in walks the prince to save the day. It's fantastic. Sooner or later, Cersei always gets what she wants. And what about what I want? Justice for my sister and her children. 
you want justice, you've come to the wrong place. I disagree. I've come to the perfect place. I want to bring those who have wronged me to justice, and all those who have wronged me are right here. I will begin with Sir Gregor Clegane, who killed my sister's children, and then raped her with their blood still on his hands, before killing her too. I will be your champion. Yeah, the the sort of choked sob of of hope, of relief from Dinklage at the very end. I mean, I yes, the scene last the end of last week was very good. I didn't like it. I wasn't as blown away as you were, Ricky. But obviously, it was a very good scene, good performance. But this for me is just worlds more engaging from Dinklage over the course of the entire episode. But this final scene in particular, uh, you know, we watched uh, we watched Tyrion go to try to go to humor for self-defense when you know the you know the 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 you know there were like the sex organs of of both genders he's like oh well, that would be convenient you know like there, he goes to humor and then he gets silent and then and then it's just he gets more and more despair until that final moment the the sort of hero shot of Oberyn with the torch and I will be your champ it was a bit you know it was a bit much for me but I was willing to give it to them because that entire scene had been so wonderful until that moment and because of the strength of Dinklage's Dinklage's performance in that moment. His reactions, I absolutely agree. We'll talk about this on the Televerse this week, Sean, with, you know, I absolutely agree about, you know, that scene in Penny Dreadful as well. But yeah, again, it's, it's, it's not just Pascal's performance. It's the reactions that really make this scene come together. Yeah, it's also nice to know that Cersei has hated her uh, Tyrion since the day he was born. You know, like, because, I mean, I know she's hated him for a long time. I just never realized she's hated him since the day he's born. I knew Tywin resented Tyrion because he's born a midget, an imp. But, um, you know, I just never really clued into the fact that Cersei's always hated him. So that was nice to know. Well, and she seems to feel like she was promised that he would die. And then he didn't. And so that it feels like that's also sort of just constantly rankled her. Like, yeah. I wasn't supposed to have to deal with you. Well, and I'm assuming she blames him for killing his, her the and mother. his... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Do we have any other elements of uh, this episode we want to talk about? It's been a short uh, conversation, but at a certain point, they're really good gets old. Are there other elements to this episode we want to discuss? Uh, yeah, Arya and the Hound. Oh, yeah, okay, let's let's go. <laughs> Arya and the Hound. Before we move on, can I just ask a question, Kate? No, yes, go for it. Okay, oh, no question. No, no, uh, <laughs> you had brought up the that that moment kind of was a little bit too much about Oberyn um, being that champion figure and, and the shooting of that. I wonder, because like, I often forget that Game of Thrones is part of that rich tradition of, of fantasy, and this wasn't like an epic fantasy moment in terms of um, – the, the genre epic fan or the subgenre, but it had that epic quality to that. Something like really cinematic that you might see like in a Lord of the Rings film. And like those moments don't really 
appear on Game of Thrones that often for me. And so when we do get something like that, it really works. And I could see why for some viewers it might be kind of on the ledge there and you might like let that go because the rest of that scene was great. But is that something that goes through your minds as you're watching Game of Thrones? That It often just feels like a, a drama that is set in a fantasy world rather than being a fantasy series. I absolutely agree. And that, maybe that's why that stands out to me. Because the rest of that scene is so naturalistic, especially, you know, the back and forth. It's so conversational. And so then we get this, and of course the score is rising and all of that, and take a stance, say a big line. Um, and so that's probably why I disconnected from it, actually, rather than engaging with that heroic uh, fantasy element, you know, epic storytelling moment, you know. I disengaged from it, and uh, I would be I would be surprised if I was in the in the majority on that. I would assume I'm I'm the minority. Ricky, uh, or am I just crazy? No, I mean uh, yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I I think yeah, you know, if you bring up say for example the score, okay, you can say the score is overwhelming and a little bit too powerful, and yeah, but I think based on a character that we know, the prince, who's kind of cocky, he likes to be the hero and he likes to think he's the best. For him, it's like he wants Tyrion to look up to him and realize, hey, I'm saving your ass. And so it works with the character. Um, but I can understand if you think the combination of the score and the lighting and him lighting up the torch is a little over the top. But for me, it totally worked. So it didn't really bug me. And also, I mean... I guessed it last week. So when he went in to visit Tyrion, I already knew straight up that he was going to fight the mountain, especially now that we know the mountain is the person that Cersei chose. So I wasn't surprised, but I was surprised by the story. Like I was taken back with the story of him visiting Tyrion when he was a baby because I didn't even realize Tyrion is that young. Like He seems like a lot older. In fact, he seems older than Prince Oberon. So, yeah. More and more, Dorne seems like the place to be in uh, Westeros. Is that just me? Sorry? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. This eternal youth. Well, yeah, but the people are chill. You know, they're they're laid back. They're having fun. They don't care if you're a bastard. You know, it seems like that's that's the place you want at the very least take your vacation. Yeah, totally. It's like Hawaii. <laughs> well, let's move on to Arya and the Hound and. Um, we get uh, we get a refresher course on the the hound scars. We get uh, some other stuff, but for me, that that capper where she finds out the guy's name and stabs him was just so sad. Really? Now, why do you find it sad? Because she's moving to the dark side because it's easy for her now to kill someone. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I was writing that in my review. I mean, the thing that's interesting about this scene is that. She seems to become stronger and darker, and she's taking on the Hound's habits. Like, she's really learning from the Hound. She's learning how to kill, and she doesn't actually have to blink or think twice now. She will stab the man in the heart right away. And now we see a different side of the Hound. We actually see the Hound weak. Like, we, we, she gets to see his weakness. She understands his weakness. She understands that he is afraid of fire. But the thing is, we've already heard the story of how the hound suffered at the hands of the mountain and he burnt him when he was a child, et cetera, et cetera. I think it was Littlefinger who told the story in the past, right? But it's completely different when you hear the hound, when you hear the victim, especially when the victim is the hound, tell the story. It's more powerful. And so when he tells the story, I find myself 
liking the Hound more and more. And this is a character who I've grown to like over the past four years. But for him to show signs of vulnerability and in front of Arya and then to see Arya grow stronger, it's really interesting. I mean, this is one of the most interesting partnerships of the entire series so far. I I watch Game of Thrones live with my brother and my parents, actually. And, and when Arya asked the guy's name, said thank you, and stabbed him, there was just a collective, whoa. <laughs> it was fantastic. I don't think anybody was like expecting that kind of dead-on performance uh, from Macy Williams. I I guess I would partially agree with it being sad. I also have to, to keep remembering that if any of his kids were to follow in Ned's footsteps in terms of being the kind of person that he was, that's not a, uh, an archetype or a personality that survives in Westeros for very long if that person's in uh, any kind of position of power. So to see Arya still maintain enough of her humanity while also hardening and and I think taking the right things away from her relationship with the Hound, mm-hmm. um, it, I think it's satisfying enough. How do you see her maintaining her humanity, though? Because she's not, like, evil, right? She still has some sort of compassion, even for this guy who she really ought to want to kill. Um, she's willing to, to stitch him up. She is the one who tries to ground him in interactions with other people, like the farmer and his daughter. She's the mm-hmm. one who scolds him to some degree. So I, I don't think she's quite made a, a full crossover um, beyond the, the person that she was in the first couple seasons. Yeah, I don't think she's decided that she fully wants to kill him. I think she's hoping that he'll change. And you see it in last week's episode when, she, like Sean says, she's trying to get him to help the farmer and his daughter you see it in this episode because she, she she does try to heal him, although she doesn't realize that the fire is actually going to freak him out and scare him. Um, so I don't think she's completely lost. I think sorry, I think I still do see a bit a bit of humanity in her. But we also got to give credit to the actor Rory McCann because his performance is fantastic, and not enough people credit the actor. I know people always talk about Charles Dance and Peter Dinklage, and I think he's doing an incredible job as the Hound and. Those scenes between him and Arya, I think, are the highlights of season four. You know, when we, th- when we think about season three, we always think about Brienne and Jamie. And this season, it's all about Arya and the Hound. So uh, I want to see more of this duo. And I actually kind of want to see them. And I think I said this last week, too. I want to see them meet up with Pod and Brienne. I think that would be hilarious. <laughs> that would be, yeah, that would definitely be interesting watching, mm-hmm. you know, I, just trying to watch uh, Arya and Pod interact I feel like it would be hilarious. Just very, that, that's an odd couple there. Um, it, what, what particularly makes that scene work so well, or that retelling of the story, it, are all these personal touches where it's not just that he had half his face like burned off. It's that he was betrayed by his father as well, because his father covered it up and didn't seem to care, at least as far as the Hound is concerned, about what had happened to him. And it was, you know, like all of these other little details that go with it's like because i took his i was borrowing his toy and you know like all the little personal touches really take that home and of course then there's that connection because it's two childhood uh stories or traumas depending on whose perspective you have of the hound and then oberon as well so there there's you know a, a contrast or a a, a duality in, in those two stories both being told in this episode yeah, 
And that that's why I think uh, the scenes with Arya and the Hound, and again with Tyrion and his three visitors, and even with Sansa to some extent, um, thematically link. I just don't understand why Mil- Melisandre was in this episode. And despite the fact that I do like the scenes with Danny, I don't think she actually fit in this episode either. But yeah, when he delivers his speech and he says, I didn't steal it, I was just playing with a toy. And he says the pain was bad, but the spell was worse. And he goes on to explain how his dad betrayed him and so on and so forth. That was fantastic. Very simple, short sequence, but he did just the perfect job in delivering the line. And he kind of felt like a little kid when he's talking to Arya. Like when he's talking, it felt like he still was so sad. It was like he was the eight-year-old boy who was scarred for apparently, supposedly stealing a toy, which he didn't do. Well, it's clear that 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 is very fresh. He has not moved. He has not moved past that fear of fire, uh, despite you know, all of these years of space. So, I mean, it, it makes sense to me. Yeah. Uh, do are there any other scenes I've forgotten that we want to make sure to, to to touch on? No, I think the Hound needs a psychologist. He should call up Hannibal. I'm sure oh, he God. could help him. <laughs> oh, what what Hannibal would do? Yo, Hot Pie has some serious baking skills. Did you mm-hmm. see that large direwolf cookie? Yeah, that was that was pretty great. That was amazing. <laughs> well, and just like when he's going out about the gravy, I'm like, see baking tips. I appreciate this. <laughs> and Cersei walking over the dead men, walking over the blood and guts. Like, man, she's got issues. I, I will not disagree. Uh, Sean, any final thoughts on this episode? Uh, no, that's. I think that's good. Did anybody remember that Jon Snow's in this episode? Uh, I had written it down. <laughs> I forgot to mention it, though. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of necessary for us to check in with him in this season. So that's it, it, it's Table good to setting. yeah, it's good to remind us that he's still out there and that the the Night's Watch are moving about. Yeah, he's still up there. Uh, the the was Slint is still an asshole and an idiot. Hmm. Yeah, more on that later. Basically, I feel like that's what this that scene was. But, well, obviously, Sean and I have read the book, so we have some sense of what's coming. Um, I guess, Sean, briefly, what do you think of all of these changes that are happening from the between the book and the show? So, like, everything we get here with Brienne is new. Brienne uh, going, you know, finding out that Arya is alive, going off to the Eyrie. Am I misremembering that? I I feel like that's not in the book. Uh, I, I don't remember it being in there either. I... My favorite kinds of adaptations are ones that aren't completely faithful, and so I would much rather see a Weiss and Benioff version or what they think Game of Thrones or A Song of Ice and Fire is in their minds. And so if those departures make sense for the story that they want to tell, I'm completely on board. For instance, they've made Braun just so much better in this TV series, and part of that is the actor. I think it's Jerome Flynn um, who's been fantastic, but he's been – an improvement, I think. And and so they kind of have a clear idea about what to, to deviate from and how to do it so that it makes more sense for a TV version of this show. And so maybe if that wasn't in the books, um, TV viewers need more of a feeling that, that these characters are gravitating towards one another to some degree. I absolutely agree. Um, and c- couldn't really say it better. So now I'll throw it over to Ricky. Hopes, expectations, fears, uh, wish list for next week. Because apparently when you, you know, hypothesize things, they happen. 
uh, not just on uh, Game of Thrones on Walking. It's a it's a trend in our in our TV podcast. So so any uh, thoughts on what you hope to see next week? Hmm, I really didn't think about it much. I mean, I guess we're going to see the prince fight the mountain, and clearly the prince is going to win because there is no way the mountain's winning because he's just such a fascinating actor and character, and I'm assuming he plays a bigger role in the future. I think we're going to get a lot more of Bran next week. I think we have to check back with Bran and his little crew. Um, I don't know. I I really don't know. I want to I want to test your abilities of foresight. So I was going to ask you like uh, I'm just pulling this number out of nowhere. So there might not be three people, three characters who who die in this season. But if there were three, and you've just said that you think the mountain will be one of those, just if, if two other people would would die, which characters would they be for the rest of the season? So three characters who haven't died yet that might possibly die before the end of the season. So there's the mountain one. I'm going to have to say Jojen. And um, that's about it. (laughs) (laughs) Because there's always a possibility that someone like Ygritte can die, but we haven't seen her in so long. So I don't know if they're ever going to return back to her character. I mean, I I don't see Sansa dying. I don't see Littlefinger dying any. Well, actually, no, can't die anytime soon. Uh, Varys, no, no, I don't know. That's about it. I, I see Marjorie playing a bigger role in next season because she's got to. I mean, she's going to be marrying the next king. <sighs> but yeah, I'm not really sure. Okay, no, that's good. Mountain, uh, Jojen, and Ygritte. We'll give you. We'll, we'll make that your third one. Well, and and uh, wouldn't we rather have it that way, right? Wouldn't we rather not know or not have a sense of uh, what's coming? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The only reason that I forced myself to read it was because a couple things just kept getting spoiled. And so it was it was kind of ruining the experience for me. Yeah. So if you're, you're going to be spoiled, you're going to be spoiled by the source material and not by jerks on Twitter. But, but honestly, like, I think this episode is really good, despite the fact that I think that there's two terrible scenes. I think there's several excellent moments here, three specific moments that stand out. And it doesn't have any game changing moments like the Red Wedding and or the Purple Wedding. And it's not a an episode like Blackwater in which we get this big epic battle. But I think those scenes with Tyrion are just so well written and so well acted that it stands heads above anything else that we see on television right now. And there's lots of great shows on TV like the Americans and, you know, the Americans and Hannibal and Hannibal. (laughs) No, I mean, like those scenes are fantastic. And I really, really like the scenes with Arya and the Hound. So I don't necessarily need someone to die each and every single episode. I'm assuming, or I'm expecting someone to die next episode, but that doesn't mean that I think it's going to be better than this, the scenes in this episode and, or the scene that closed off last week's episode. Sometimes, you know, you don't need action or someone dying for it to be really shocking and amazing. Good point. Not at all. No, no, but that, that seems to be like the, the story that this is, which it's not defined by that, I think, but it's certainly an aspect of it. Yeah. Well, I think that's uh, very well said and an excellent point. And on that note, we will reconvene to break down what must be an eventful episode based on its title. Sean, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Where can our listeners find you and your work online? I co-host two podcasts with you, uh, the Televerse, and this is our Design the Hannibal podcast, and you can see those on Sound On Site or at Sound On Site, and uh, some of my reviews appeared there 
Otherwise, they will be at tvovermine.com or my personal blog, thereisnothingon.com. And uh, thank you again, Sean, for coming on. Next week, Game of Thrones takes Memorial Day off, or Memorial Day weekend off, that is. But uh, we'll be back in two weeks to break down The Mountain and The Viper, written by David Benioff and D.B. Weiss and directed by Alex Graves. So we'll see you guys in two weeks. What can I buy with gratitude? You might be surprised. Lannister always pays his debts. Your sister's a Lannister, too. My wife is heir to Winterfell. If I emerge from this with my head still on my shoulders, I may one day rule the North in her name. I could carve you out a big piece of it. If and may and could. It's bloody cold up North. Lollis is soft and warm and close. If I gave you the choice between fucking Lollis and fighting the mountain, you'd have your britches down and your cock up before I could blink. Does he frighten you so much? I'd be a bloody fool if he didn't frighten me. He's freakish big and freakish strong. And quicker than you'd expect for a man of that size. Maybe I could take him. Dance around until he's so tired of hacking at me he dropped his sword. Get him off his feet somehow. But one misstep and I'm dead. Why should I risk it? Because you're my friend. Aye, I'm your friend. And when have you ever risked your life for me?
Sway around to the cadence of your voice when you sang there.